morning. Welcome to Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. We're going to get started because it's 9 o'clock, even though our clock says it's 9.05. We're excited for you to join us, whether you're here or online. It's great for you to be here. Um, if you, This is just a little <coughs> public service announcement. If you do find a dart, this may or may not be my fault, and uh, I would take them on my desk if you want to give me them. Um, a couple of quick announcements. Uh, first of all, we have uh, child dedications coming up, so that'll be May 9th. If you want more info on that, uh, please contact the church office. Um, yeah, there's a link in this week's prepare email for that. Also, VBS is coming up, Living Waters. Um, this will be in July, um, so there will be further info coming soon for that Uh, and finally if you are new we would love for you to fill out one of these connect cards um, or if you have a prayer request you can put it on there too Um, just fill it out put it in the box at the back and someone will contact you well we're going to continue in worship eric i'd like to also welcome you to our service this morning glad to see so many here and welcome you that are joining us online we're glad to have you here with us our Our plan is to worship the Lord this morning, and um, we're glad that you're here to join us in that. Um, Have you ever noticed that sometimes life just kicks you in the teeth? Well, that's been my experience the last few weeks. Uh, Perhaps you've heard that Subeth and I both had COVID a couple weeks ago, and Subeth had it uh, pretty bad. She was in a tough way for two weeks, and she's still slowly coming out of it. I had it for two days, so I'm grateful for that. Um, but, you know, there were some long nights where I could just hear Suveth suffering, and there was nothing that I could do to make it better. So that was difficult. Um, so that's one kick in the teeth. Um, also, we've had a couple of our body here that have lost spouses in the last few months. Um, that's hard to take. One of us just lost a sister who was my age to early onset Alzheimer's. That's difficult. Um, we have a couple in our church who have a son who's going to have a brain tumor removed tomorrow. So all of these things kind of add up. We have a lot of people that are in chronic pain. And so sometimes it just adds up to a lot of heaviness. You know, I'm sure that all of you in the sound of my voice in this room or online, you have your own story of pain or loss of some kind, disappointments. Life has all kicked us in the teeth at some way and in some time. But, you know, we don't live as those who have no hope. God has promised not to leave us or forsake us. And he's also promised to walk with us when we go through the valley of the shadow of death. And so now we're going to sing together an old hymn. It has rich poetic language that points us to the hope that we have in Christ and these promises that he's made for us. Let's sing of this hope together. Oh, love that will not let me go.
you this morning. Those of you who are new, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here and it's going to join together with you this morning, whether you're here in person or online. And we continue to give, or we continue to worship. One of the ways you want to worship is through our giving. And so there's a couple options for how to do that. One, you can drop a gift in the boxes on the back wall uh, by the doors on your way out, or you can give online at tlefc.org slash give. You can also send it to the church office. So we're just thankful for those of you who um, have faithfully given to the ministries here at the church, and we want to acknowledge that as a way that we worship God is through giving back to Him what He gives to us. As Eric mentioned, there are times when life kicks us in the teeth, when life is hard, when life is challenging, and one of the great gifts that God has given us is the ability to come to Him in prayer, knowing that he understands those things. So would you pray with me this morning? Father, we, we come acknowledging that there is pain, there is sorrow, there is hurt in many of our lives, probably all of our lives in some form or another. Um, yeah, we just we're aware, we feel the fact that this is this world is not the, the perfect world. You created that it is fallen, that it is broken, that we have to wrestle with the challenges that come with living in a fallen and broken world. We have to wrestle with the consequences of our own sin and the sin of others. And yet, God, you did not leave us to deal with those effects of sin on our own. You do not leave us to receive our just punishment. But you sent Jesus to come to us on our behalf to live a perfect life for us, to die for us. You love us and you invite us to come to you, to join with you in your work of advancing the kingdom of Jesus. And one day you will come again, 
Jesus, and you will make all things right, that you will usher in a new heavens and a new earth where there is no more hurting, there is no more pain, there is no more suffering. God, for those of us in our church family here who are really feeling the hurt and the pain of living in a fallen, broken world, I pray for them right now that you would pour out grace on them. That you would bring healing where it's needed. That you would bring comfort where it's needed. But above all, that you would give each person who is feeling pain and suffering a an assurance of your good plan both for their life and for your eternal kingdom. We live in the hope of the glory you have promised to us. For churches around the world, pray that you would give them the same confidence, the same hope, for churches that are meeting this morning in far more trying environments than ours, whether under persecution or in poverty, for that you would be with them, give them a deep abiding sense of your goodness and of your great plan. And as we sing now this morning, when we sing as a means of glorifying you as a way to Give praise to you for what you've done for us in Jesus. God, our heart be tuned to really mean the words that we sing, that we would not sing these words as mere church activity, but that we would mean the words that we sing, that we would feel the significance of the words that we sing this morning, that we would glorify you through that. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. continue our worship this morning by um, reading together some scripture. If you are able, please stand uh, in honor of the Lord's word and then we'll sing while you're standing as well. So let's read responsively this section from Romans chapter 12. In, in his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, 
Never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge and I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. that despite our many sins, despite all the ways that we have rejected what you have called us to, despite all the ways that we fail to live in light of what you have called us to, that you dispense mercy upon mercy to us, that you've forgiven us, that your mercy is more 
and all our sins, that we are forgiven because of your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I looked this week and found out every single minute of every single day, on average, 500 hours of video are uploaded to YouTube. So that's 30,000 hours of video are uploaded every single hour. 720,000 hours of video are uploaded every single day. That's a lot of video. And like 99.9% of it is garbage. It's just terrible. It's like eight-year-olds shooting on their cell phone and whatever. It's just bad video. But every, every once in a while, you find a little bit of gold in the midst of all the junk. So one of the pieces of gold that I love is the channel called Smarter Every Day. It's by a guy from Huntsville, Alabama named Destin Sandlin. He's an engineer by trade, um, but he does his YouTube channel on the side. He just makes videos about topics that interest him, right? science topics and engineering topics. As a side note, he also has a podcast he does with a, with a free church pastor from Wyoming right, called No Dumb Questions, and it's just they talk about a wide variety of things. And so if you're looking for something to listen to, like called No Dumb Questions, I'd recommend it. But that has nothing to do with the sermon. I just mentioned that. But what what does have to do with the sermon is he has a video that he released in 2015 called The Backward Brain Bicycle. So I I included it in this week's prepare email, but if you didn't see that or didn't get a chance to watch it, like, I mean, I'll explain it to you here. I think you'll understand the point. And so, like, one of the welders at the place where he worked as an engineer, one of the welders made this bicycle that basically worked backwards of what you would expect from a bicycle. Right? So if you turn the handlebars left, the front wheel turns right. If you turn the handlebars right, the front wheel turns left. And so like, he made this video about how hard it is to ride a bicycle like this. How your brain is so entrenched in a certain way of doing things that it like, can't adjust. Right? So it's the video of people trying to ride it, and like, they would try weird things, that they would cross their hands over, and they thought that would just like... Magically solve the problem. But nothing worked. He would go to these conferences, be on a stage like this big, and he would offer someone $200 so they could just ride the bike in a straight line across the stage. And like time and time again, people failed. Like no one could do it. The brain just doesn't work in a way that you can adjust to riding a bicycle backward. But Destin, Sandlin, he... He said, like, he's determined, I'm going to teach myself how to ride this bicycle. And so day after day, he would ride the bike, try to ride the bike to the end of his driveway and back. And eventually he figured it out. He describes how one day, like, something in his brain just clicked. And all of a sudden it made sense and his brain just did it. Like, it just popped, snapped, and it just worked. And it was a really exciting moment for him. There's just one problem. All of a sudden, he couldn't ride a regular bike anymore. Like, there's this video of him. Like, he's this grown man who learned how to ride a bike at six years old, but running a bike his whole life, and all of a sudden, he can't ride a regular bike. 
Because his brain had flipped, and he could do the backwards thing now, but he couldn't do the regular thing. And it's like he learned right, this new way of understanding the world of the bicycle. When he did that, like the old way no longer made sense. And the same thing is true for us as we follow Jesus. What once seemed obvious and intuitive about how the world works, like suddenly seems wrong. When, he, when we follow Jesus, he causes us to see the world in a radically different way than we used to. And he teaches us things that are unexpected, things that are counterintuitive to the ways of the world. Again, short, he teaches us things that are radical. Hence the title of today's sermon. Like, uh, Jesus is a radical teacher. Like, we need to be careful with that word, radical. It can have connotations sometimes that I don't intend when I say Jesus is radical here. So let me give you the definition that I, I mean. So, Merriam-Webster, one of their definitions of radical is favoring extreme changes in existing views, habits, conditions, or institutions. And that's what Jesus does through his teaching. He favors extreme changes in views and habits of the world. He favors extreme changes in views like that it is the wealthy who are blessed by God. Or that it's a good thing when everyone speaks well of you. Or he changes the view that like, it is a blessing to be well fed and laughing all the time. Or that if someone hates you, you should hate them back. And if someone harms you, you should harm them back. Those are the existing views of the world. If I'm being honest, like they're also often the views of my own heart. Like that's the way I'm hardwired to think, and I often feel those things. But then Jesus comes... And as we'll see in today's passage, he teaches us the exact opposite of those things. We've been, we've been making our way through the book of Luke. We're in chapter 6 this morning. And if you have a, a Bible with the words of Jesus in red, and you look back at the first five chapters, you'll notice there's not all that much red in the first five and a half chapters of Luke. Like a, we've had a couple times Jesus speaking in response to Satan when he's tempted in the wilderness, or interacting with Pharisees. We get one brief sermon when he launched his ministry. But by and large, the first five and a half chapters of Luke are Luke describing what Jesus has been doing, but not Jesus talking all that much. But this passage today marks a kind of a transition point in the book of Luke, so that if you look at the rest of Luke, from here to chapter 24, you'll see lots of red. Right, so Jesus... Luke shifts from telling us about what Jesus was doing and instead shows us Jesus' words for themselves. Right? I mean, it's not 100% the case. There, there's still times when Luke describes what Jesus was doing in the rest of the book, but by and large, a lot of the rest of the book is Jesus teaching. So Luke here, in this first part of Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 17, he introduces us to Jesus the teacher going to tell us about how Jesus teaches. And we, when we left off last week, Jesus had just called his disciples to himself on a mountainside and then chosen 12 of those disciples 
to be his apostles, to be those whom he would send out with his authority. As we pick up in verse 17, they're now coming down the mountain after having been chosen. And in verse 17 we read, He went down the mountain with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, he had come to, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And so just notice here, that there's, three, there's three levels right, of, of people who have come to listen to Jesus. Right? You have the twelve apostles, right, those who are specially chosen, and you have the larger crowd of other disciples, right? people who have chosen to follow Jesus, who have committed themselves to him. And then also you have a large crowd, people from all over the place, from Tyre and Sidon and Judea and Jerusalem, from all over the place, who haven't decided to follow Jesus yet, but who have heard enough about Jesus to have their curiosity piqued. They want to know, like, what's this guy about? And so they come out to hear him and to see if it's really true what they've heard, that he can heal diseases. So as we go through this passage, both this week and next week, it's it's important to keep in mind, like, who Jesus is talking to. Like, who is he addressing? And it it matters in a couple different places. So we want to think about, like, is he talking to the disciples, primarily, people who have already chosen to follow him? Or is he talking to the crowd, people who are interested in him? It's an important distinction to keep in mind as we walk through. So picking up again in verse 18. So they come from all over to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those Troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. And so let's continue the, a trend we've seen in Luke, that Jesus had the power to heal. But Jesus never healed just for the sake of healing. That he used his power to heal to prove that he had the authority to make the claims he was going to make. So earlier in Luke, right, he, he healed the paralytic to prove that he had the authority to forgive sins. And here he does the same thing. He's going he's gonna to heal these people to give weight to his teaching that's about to come. He heals to give credibility to his teaching. And so Jesus combines a meeting physical need combines care for those in need with faithful teaching about God. The two go hand in hand. There's never one without the other. And the same thing should be true for us as we follow Jesus. Too often, different streams of people who claim to be Christian want either one or the other, but not both. So you have some groups who are all about meeting physical and social needs, but never feel the need to proclaim truth. On the other hand, you have people who are all about proclaiming truth, proclaiming the gospel, telling people about Jesus, but never meet physical needs. 
But Jesus models both of those for us. We should be meeting physical needs as a means of earning the right to be heard. As a way of showing that our words are not empty blusters, but that we're serious about living them out. Like meeting needs and speaking truth cannot be mutually exclusive. You can't pick one or the other. They must go hand in hand. That's what Jesus does. He shows his credibility and his authority through his healings. And then having done that, he begins to teach. And so this section here, starting in verse 20, for the next 29 verses is one of the longest passages of teaching in the book of Luke. It's often called the Sermon on the Plain. And it's called that because Luke tells us that Jesus came down from the mountain to a flat place. The King James Version translated flat place as plain, and the name just kind of stuck. So it's the Sermon on the Plain. And there's a lot of overlap here with the maybe more famous Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew. And like you get scholars who debate whether the Sermon on the Plain and the Sermon on the Mount are the same sermon, or they're different sermons. And it ultimately doesn't really matter, right? But to me, like, it seems likely that Jesus probably taught similar things as he traveled around, and so they're probably two different sermons. But it ultimately doesn't, it doesn't ultimately matter. Because regardless of whether it's the same sermon or a different sermon, like, we can be confident these words from Luke are the exact words that God wanted Luke to record in his gospel. It's not that it's the same sermon and either Matthew or Luke messed up. Like both Matthew's words and Luke's words were given by God through the Holy Spirit in order that we may better understand God and for us to grow in godliness. Like these are God's words given to us. And it's important for us to recognize that these are God's words. Because the word Jesus is about to say don't make sense. Like they are radical and if they were just the words of a mere man, we'd be tempted to just toss them out. Because they don't fit with a way we're wired to view the world. Jesus preaches here a radical sermon. It has ideas in it that just don't make sense. The thing Jesus says in this passage, like the backward bicycle, they demand a whole new way of thinking about the world, if they're going to make any kind of sense. Let's see what I mean. Like, let's look at verses 20 to 26 together. So verse 20 says, Looking at his disciples, he said, so notice it's his disciples that he's primarily addressing here. He said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. 
Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. So in these, ver- in these verses, we have a series of, of really radical blessings and woes. Right? There are four blessings, four woes that kind of go together in pairs. And I want to look in, in a minute at each pair of blessings and woes, but before we do that, let's make sure we understand what we mean by the word blessed and the word woe. The word translated blessed here, or blessed, right, is sometimes translated happy. You'll find translations that translate it happy. And there's, there's an element of truth to that. It is partly about happiness. But the word like, has more to do with our status with God and our situation before God. And it does with like, just mere feelings or emotions. And so it's this idea of being in a situation with God that is joyful and blessed. We are, we are in a good situation with God. Whereas the word woe is more of a word of sorrow. Often we think of like blessings and then the opposite being curses. But it's not quite the same thing here. Like Jesus is not saying like cursed are the rich. Like it's more an expression of, of regret or of sorrow. Like Jesus is more saying, like, how tragic is it for you if you are rich? Which is, again, a radical thing to say. Like, that is tragic, right? It's sad. It's a pitiable state to be rich. But a, a couple of things to understand here. Right? The first, like Jesus is talking to his disciples, right? those who have already decided to follow him. And so, these blessings and woes, hear this, it's important, right? are not a set of instructions about how to get to be a follower of Jesus. Right? It's not a set of instructions about how to earn your way into heaven. This is addressing people who have already decided to follow Jesus. It's not how to earn God's favor. Right? Lots of religions do that. Right? They call their followers to deny themselves in order to prove their devotion and to earn their God's favor. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. Like Instead, like deep blessings and woes are a set of instructions for living a joyful and satisfy life as follower to Jesus, both now and for eternity. And it's a hard thing to grasp. Like, surely Jesus can't actually mean that those who are poor are favored by God, while those who are rich are to be pitied. Like, that seems backward. Right? But that's what Jesus says. So I'll just walk through each pair of blessings and woes and see what Jesus has to say. So first he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And the matching woe is, But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. And what Jesus is saying here is not that poor people are automatically virtuous well, rich people are automatically wicked. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that like, poor people get to go to heaven just by the mere fact that they're poor and the rich have no hope of heaven simply because they're rich. 
That's not what Jesus is saying. But Jesus is saying that the poor people are blessed because they have learned to rely on and trust God for everything. And ultimately, that attitude of relying on and trusting God and depending on God is the key to living a blessed life. Meanwhile, the rich, he says, have already received their comfort. Their comfort is in their wealth. They have learned to trust in material possessions and their own ability to make money as their source of hope and security and comfort. Jesus is saying, it is blessed, it is far better to be aware of your dependence on God. At the end of the day, whether you're rich or you're poor, we are all dependent on God for everything. Every breath we take is a gift from God. Every step we take, every thought we think, every good deed we do, our ability to do any of those things ultimately come from God and God alone. Like We cannot do it in our own power. We are utterly dependent on God. Whether we know it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, it is true Like we are dependent on God for everything. And for those who are poor, like that kind of statement is much more obvious, that they depend on God, that they need God for everything. And acknowledging right, that our life is not our own. Acknowledging that we exist because of and for the glory of our great Creator is the path to the blessed life. But for the rich, it's easy to fall into a trap of self-sufficiency. To believe that they are successful because of their own self-effort. To live a life like that, though, is like exhausting. To live a life where you believe everything depends on you is hard. It leads to guilt when you ultimately fail. Living a life depending on your own wealth and self-effort, instead of relying on God, is ultimately a pitiable condition. It's Exhausting. It is not the path to a truly blessed, truly joyful life. And so Jesus makes this statement, right? Not, not to warn the rich that they won't get into heaven if they don't make themselves poor. But Jesus makes this statement to invite the rich to place their trust and their confidence and dependence not on the material wealth, but on Him. One of the keys, one of the most important things about the blessed life is to know that you need God. That nothing else can meet all your needs. So if you're here, right now, listening online or in person, and you're rich, which, let's be clear, like by Jesus' standard, there's most of us in this room. Jesus is not saying, like, you have to go make yourself poor. You have to go sell everything. Like, that's not what he's saying. But he is saying, if you want to live a blessed, joyful life, you need to use your money and possessions in a way that shows that you are not dependent on them, but that your dependence is on God. 
You need to understand that your money and your ability to earn money come from God and it's to be used for God's purposes. To bless others, to meet needs. Our money and our wealth should be held with an open hand. We're ready to give it away for God's purposes. And when we do that, when we live that way, like that's a path to a blessed, joyful, satisfying, contented life. And the second pair of statements had the same basic idea. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. And woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Again, like this feeling of hunger, it's a clear sign that you have physical needs that must be met. And those who continually live in hunger are driven to see that their need for food is ultimately met by God. But again, it's like a, a radical idea, right? Like it's, it's not natural, like in the midst, like I feel a little hungry, right? I think, oh, like I'm, I'm feeling so blessed right now. Like that's not the first idea that pops into my head. But that's what Jesus says. Because hunger is another way for us to see our need for God. But the third pair of blessings in the world is even more radical. Jesus says, Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And then he says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. But it's like hardwired into us to think like laughing and cheer and happiness is good and weeping is bad. There's a reason, if you look at movies that are made, movies with Happy endings and comedies, like they're way more common, they're way more popular than like movies where only sad and tragic things happen. Right? Like no one's signing up to go to the movie where everyone dies and nothing happy happens. Like we want to laugh, we want to feel good. But then Jesus says stuff like this. What are you who mourn? It's like, what does that mean for how we live? Does that mean, like, I just need to walk around all day, every day, looking glum, trying to find things to make me cry? Should I like, try to avoid anything that will make me laugh? Again, that's, that's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is that, like, when you look out at the world, we just talked about this morning during the prayer area, when you look at the world you see what's going on. Like, you see that it is broken. You see sin and pain and suffering in the world. Like, and that should cause your heart to break. It should cause you to weep. Like, if you know God, if you're following God, then you know that this world is not as God intends. That this is not the perfect world God created. And you should be moved to weep over the condition of the world. But for, but, but for people who don't know God, for people who believe that this world is all that there is, that there is no life beyond this life, but then this life and this world is all that they get. So they better make the most of it. They better find as many reasons to laugh as they can, even if they aren't good reasons. Paul says 
if they're dead or not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If your life is filled with flippant laughter and flippant happiness, and you, you can't be bothered by the sorrows of the world, you just block them out, and you just want to find as many ways to feel happy for a moment as you can. Right? Well, then Jesus says, woe to you. Right? Jesus says, that is a pitiable position. There's a far greater light that comes from knowing that this world is not all there is. There is coming a day when all things will be made right. If you are broken over the sin and the suffering and pain in this world, then Jesus has a word of comfort for you. He says there is coming a day when you will laugh. A day when all the wrongs of the world will be made right. When all the pain will be taken away. Jesus will come again and we will live with him in the new heavens and the new earth where there is no more sin. And on that day, we will laugh, Jesus says, with joy. And I just, like, I love the promise of laughter from Jesus. It's easy to think of heaven. Like, that's just a place where we go and we like stand in reverent awe of God and like an angel chorus sings around us and whatever. Like, we float on clouds. and like, That sounds great for like a while. Right? But if I was going to spend eternity and like, that's all I could do was like stand in awe, like, frankly, that sounds boring after a while. But the Bible's picture of what eternity looks like is far richer than that. We will feast with Jesus and our hunger will be satisfied. And we will laugh. There will be joy and humor and good conversation as part of eternity. The world is broken. The world is hurting. That should cause us to weep and to grieve. But we do not weep. We do not grieve as those without hope. We weep and grieve while looking forward to the day when all sin and pain and sorrow is taken away. And we live a life where we will laugh. And that brings us to the final pair of blessings and woes when Jesus says, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Then woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. For that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. We don't have a lot of time to dwell here, but just, again, like feel how counterintuitive and radical those words are. She says, you are blessed when people hate you, but woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. Like, most of us have this like, innate desire to be liked, to be liked by everyone. So it just feels wrong. But as Christians, we have a message that will inevitably offend some people. Like our message to the world is, you are a sinner in need of a Savior, that you aren't good enough in your own power. And that message is the message that offends people. It's going to cause some people to hate you and to insult you. If you're being obedient to Jesus by proclaiming that message, that good news ultimately, not everyone will speak well of you. 
And so being hated and rejected by some people is a sign that you are being obedient to Christ. But the key here is that Jesus is talking about people who are hated for following him, for being obedient to him. This is not an invitation to just go be a jerk and have people hate you because you're just a jerk to them. That's not what Jesus said. He didn't say, like, blessed are you when people hate you because you're a mean person. He says, blessed are you when people hate you because of me. Being obedient to Jesus. So if people hate you for doing what Jesus has called you to do, Jesus says, you are blessed. And the question becomes, like, if, we are, if we're going to be hated by some people, how do we respond to that hatred? And Jesus gives us the answer in the next couple of verses. In verses 27 through 31, Jesus says, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. This is an invitation to a radical kind of love. I don't have a lot to say about these verses. Ultimately, they don't need a lot of explanation. We don't need a lot of deep insight into what they mean. Like the words themselves are pretty straightforward. What we need to know is that Jesus actually meant these words when he said them. That we should actually do these things. Like we should actually love our enemies. So the question then is like, how are you doing at this? It is radical. It is counterintuitive to love your enemies. To, to do good to those who hate you. To pray for those who mistreat you. To do to others, whether they're a friend or an enemy, as you would have them do to you. That's a hard task that we're given by Jesus. If I'm being honest, right? I, I read that passage... And I understand what the words mean. But then the first thing that pops into my head is, yeah, but you don't understand. There's this one situation. Like, you can't mean that here. Or, like, like, surely you didn't mean, like, really? Like, if someone hits me, you just, like, take it and, like, turn the other cheek. Like, you can't actually mean that, Jesus. Like, or I think, like, yeah, I hear that, but I can't do that. How do I do that? And Jesus has the answer for it in the next few verses. Verses 32 to 36, Jesus says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners 
expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. The reason we can love our enemies the way Jesus calls us to in this passage is that we have the perfect model of what radical love for enemies looks like in Jesus. Paul tells us in Romans, while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. You and me, we were all once God's enemies. And aren't you thankful that as God the Father and Jesus the Son like, sat in heaven and discussed the plan to save people. Like, Jesus didn't say, yeah, but look at those. You can't really mean that. Jesus didn't say those things. Instead, Jesus fully embraced God's radical plan to save his enemies. Even though he was hated and rejected and despised by us, God sent his son Jesus to die for us. Over the, over the past several months, we've watched several clips from the chosen, who they have graciously allowed us to show with their permission. And this week, we're going to watch one here at the end that depicts probably the most famous scene in the Bible. It's the scene that John 3.16 comes from, where Jesus says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. So as we watch it, as we come to those lines, just, just dwell on the fact like how radical it is that God would send his one and only, his beloved Son, to save sinners who had rejected and despised him. Let's watch. Welcome, Nicodemus. Don't be alarmed. He's waiting for you. the owner of this house for more lanterns. But he said they would draw attention. Yes, I imagine they would. The human eye is drawn to light. Can't help it. It just happens. There are many things we are drawn to without our thinking or our ability to explain why. Thank you for agreeing to meet. Thank you for trying to help Mary when you did. No help. You were meant to be there. Me? So I could fail miserably? 
at an exorcism in the Red Quarter? If you had not been there that day, would you be on this roof tonight? I don't know where to start. I have so many questions. Right, shall we sit first? Oh, yes. slums. Hmm. Many wandering preachers have succeeded in gathering crowds with their rhetoric and fiery tone. I've heard a few of them over the years myself. So you know the type. Mm -hmm. But I have never heard anyone tell a paralytic to get up and walk, much less it actually happened. So what is your conclusion? I believe you are not acting alone. No one can do these signs you do without having God in him. Only someone who has come from God. And how is that belief going over in the synagogue? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why we are here at this hour. What else? What have you come here to show us? A kingdom. That is what our rulers are worried about. No, not that kind. Then what? A sort of kingdom that a person cannot see unless he is born again. Born again? Yes. You mean like a new creature? A conversion from Gentile to Jewish? No. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Then what is born again? I hope you don't mean return to the womb, because that would be a problem for me. My mother, and she rest in peace, is dead. <laughs> Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That part of you, that, is what must be reborn to new life. How can these things be? Ah, a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. Huh? I'm trying, Rabbi. I know. I know. Do you hear this? What? Listen. What do you hear? The wind. How do you know it's the wind? Because I can feel it. I hear its sound. Do you know where it comes from? No. Do you know where it's going? No. That's what it is to be born again of the Spirit. The Spirit may work in a way that is a mystery to you. And while you cannot see the spirit, you can recognize his effect. Mind is consumed with thoughts of what a stir these words would cause among the teachers of the law. Yes. And I do not expect otherwise. I speak of what I know and have seen. And it has not been received by the religious leaders. It is hard to receive. So if I have told you of earthly things... And you do not believe. How 
can I tell you heavenly things? I believe your words. I just fear you may not have a chance to speak many more of them before you are silenced. I have come to do more than speak words, Nicodemus. More miracles? Yes. But even more than that. Do you remember when the children of Israel complained against God and against Moses in the wilderness of Paran? Yes. They wanted to return to Egypt and they cursed the manna that God sent them. And then? They were bitten by serpents and they were dying. But? But God made a way for them to be healed. Moses lifted the bronze serpent in the desert and people only needed to look at it. So will the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Our people are not dying from snake bites. They're dying from taxation and oppression. I'm sorry to disappoint you. But I did not come to deliver the people from Rome. Then from what? From sin. From spiritual death. God loves the world in this way. That he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So this has nothing to do with Rome. It's all about sin. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, Nicodemus. He sent him to save it through him. It's as simple as Moses' serpent on the pole. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Have you ever heard anything like this before? When I met Lilith, Mary, that day, I told my wife and my students she was beyond human aid. Only God could have healed her. And then I saw her. And here you are. The healer. I, my whole life, I have wondered if I would see this day. Follow me. And you'll see more. Join me and my students. In two days' time, we leave Capernaum. Come see the kingdom I am bringing into this world. But I... I can't... You have a position in the Sanhedrin. You have family. You are getting advanced in years. <laughs> I understand. But the invitation is still open. To what exactly? To lead a nomadic life? To, to give up who I am? It's true. There is a lot you would give up. But what you would gain is far greater and more lasting. Is this another one of your born-again mysteries? <laughs> uh, maybe. I know mysteries aren't easy for a scholar. Think about it. Hmm? 
time. On the morning of the fifth day, we leave and we'll meet by the well in the southern quarter at dawn. Kingdom of God really coming? What does your heart tell you? My heart is swollen with fear and wonder. You can tell me nothing except that I am standing on holy ground. What Jesus calls us to in loving our enemies is truly radical. But when we're born again, as he says, we must be by trusting and believing in him and through the Holy Spirit working in us. We are transformed so that that which was radical becomes the new way of seeing the world. So if you've never trusted Jesus, the goal of the passage is not like, all right, you just go try really hard to love your enemies. That'll make you right with God. But the invitation is to trust in Jesus and let the Holy Spirit come and transform and work in your life. Make you able to love your enemies the way he called us to here. For us who have trusted in Jesus, we're able to love our enemies because Jesus came when we were his enemies and died for us. So let us look to him as our example as we seek to love our enemies well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done in Jesus. We thank you for the way you love us, the way you care for us, the way you loved us even when we were your enemies. Help us to reflect that. Help us to love our enemies well, trusting that you are a God who sees all you, that you are a God of justice and that one day you will set all things right even the ways we've been mistreated. That as we read earlier, that vengeance is yours, that it's not ours to exact. We trust that you will set all things right. I pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. As you go from here, go living the blessed life God has called you to, and go loving your enemies well. You are dismissed.